0: Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, a novel review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature. And the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle. So let's start making our way through one book at a time. Hello, good day, and welcome the beginning of another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus and I am your host, and for today's episode, part two of a three-part trilogy from Ancient Greece. That's right, today I will be discussing the second play from the Oresteian trilogy, The Corphori. But before I jump into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past and, I mean, it's a bit depressing this week actually, guys, sorry. But I just wanted to talk about this article I read that was, yeah, like really, really depressing. It kind of detailed and outlined how our attention spans are in decline, a lot sort of thanks to social media and the never-ending scrolling that you can go through or doom scrolling, I guess. You know, losing hours, days, weeks, months, years to the scroll. But because of this, they said that no book should be no, like no modern book should be more than a hundred thousand words because people's attention spans can't handle or maybe perhaps more appropriately don't want to handle the attention drawn away from that length of time and and the investment as well in it and i just think that is so incredibly sad it's it's tough because in some ways i get the issue and why sometimes yeah sometimes after a long day the thought of reading a big dense novel or perhaps watching a long dense film is not what i want so you know instead i do turn to those 20 minute sitcoms and doom scrolling, and sometimes at the same time. But I also just think it's sad because, well, firstly, 100,000 words isn't actually that long for a book, and secondly, because all my favourite books are long books. So it's, you know, for me at least, it's really nice to sink your teeth into a big book, to know that I'm going to spend the next month, perhaps even longer, with the same characters and the same story. It's, It's something to relish and embellish in. So basically what I'm saying is that This is your sign to start that big boy on your shelf. I've just started one, but I will reveal that a bit later in the episode. So now you just basically have to listen to the whole episode, suckers. Housekeeping, as always, all the scripts from the episode are available on my website. Just in case you know of anyone who has a hearing impairment who might get a kick out of a written version of the pods. So head along, they're all free for use for all to enjoy. okay on with the episode where should I start with this play? maybe just by saying that this episode will be about the Corfori which is the second play in a trilogy that trilogy is the Orestian trilogy. Part one I explored was called Agamemnon which was explored in episode 7 of the podcast so maybe go and check that out first if this is if you if you've just joined this episode go check that one out first and that this is a trilogy that finds itself in Greece in the Greek world post-Trojan War. While the Korthori doesn't take place directly after Agamemnon, the feeling, the sentiment, the tone flows as if it was the same story, which, I mean, essentially it is. In the story, it has been a few years since the murder of Agamemnon. Actually, this might be a good time to do an overview, and this story is actually quite a simple one and incredibly straightforward. The play depicts the return of Orestes to Argos, who is the son of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra and his encounter with his sister Electra and their plan to avenge their father's death by killing their mother and her lover Aegisthus. So again you can see straight away this play delves into the shadowy realm of the complexities of human condition and the cost and consequence and legacy of bloodshed. We also get a brief glimpse into the foundations of the curse that rests upon the house of Atreus, providing context for the ongoing bloodshed in the family line. but. I reckon, let's really kick things off with another sparkling quote to illustrate the energy of this play. And the quote goes, Through the hushed midnight house a voice rang clear, And hair stood stiff with fear, As anger burst from sleep, And every ear knew that prophetic tone, Which warns in dreams and calls this house to hear. From an inner room where women sleep, That groan spoke like a fate, And men whose pledged their skill to interpret visions said, Inspired by heaven's will, Hot indignation lives amongst the dead, and vengeance waits for those who kill. This is just one passage, and you can see just in this one how grandiose it is. It is bursting with anger and prophetic tones, dreams, fates, visions and vengeance, and it's this kind of incredibly descriptive language that helps to enhance the visual and sensory aspect of the play, making the scenes really come alive through the language. What is supremely curious and interesting is that in this story, it is clear that the murder of Agamemnon is seen as much more drastic than that of Agamemnon to his own daughter, who of course he murdered for favourable winds to set the fleet on course to Troy so many years prior. Now, this could be for a few reasons, it could be a factor of time, simply it had been 10 years since Agamemnon had killed his daughter, and so, there's this idea of a statue of limitations perhaps? Maybe it was the recognition of something larger than the ideals of family, sacrificing the daughter for what would then be one of the biggest victories, if not the biggest victory in Greek history. Or maybe Orestes and Electra just didn't like their sister and hated her, and perhaps it was this idea of a matriarch at the head of the country. Now, I personally agree with the narrative of sacrifice for the larger picture of Greek victory, because... At this time of the Trojan War, historically speaking, our evidence for this idea of a united Greece is actually very thin. So the Trojan War for the Greeks later actually becomes a story of familiarity and unity, and one where the Greeks bound together for the first time to defeat something. So therefore there's this idea of sacrificing for the larger good that would have been a strong motivator to portray to the social classes of Greece going forward. Now of course, that is something we can never truly know but to me that does seem to sort of make the most sense, especially since that throughout the play, Agamemnon is referred to as Dear Father, with sentiments attached like The Wealth You Won from the Trojan War, so it's clear that what he did for the country and family name in regards to wealth and honour is valued quite highly, despite the murder of his own daughter. I think this idea is also further reinforced through the title, which of course is The Corphori, or depending on your translation, it might appear as the Libation Bearers, which is just the translation of Corphori from ancient Greek, and this refers to the women in the play who come to pour proprietary offerings upon the grave of Agamemnon. Now, the Corphori are not exclusive to this play, and in fact they have played a significant role in various cultures throughout history. These individuals hold the responsibility of carrying out ceremonial duties, assisting in rituals, and supporting artistic performances. There is a more typical spelling, and that is the korephori. So there's the korephori and the korephori. But Aeschylus might have preferred an archaic or poetic form of the word, as the spelling korephori deviates from the more common spelling korephori. The use of the archaic or alternative spelling was not uncommon in ancient Greek literature, as authors often aim to evoke a sense of antiquity to elevate the poetic quality of their works. So... <laughs> To get to the actual point of what I'm saying, the role of the Corphuri was to devote themselves to fulfilling important ceremonial and artistic functions, acting as a bridge between performances and the audience. By doing so, they enhance the overall aesthetic experience, enabling the transmission of cultural t- traditions and narratives. The Corphore become custodians of heritage, preserving and passing on a shared history and values to future generations. So The title of the play might be a further continuation to almost force it onto the viewer's face about the role of societal sacrifice and the importance of working for the betterment of society. That is not known though, just something i sort of thought of and considered while reading and drawing up the notes, so a bit of food for thought. So, while being actively concerned with a larger societal aspect, the play does actually question and address a lot of familial and personal questions about the morality of revenge. Both Orestes and Electra feel that, not only are they just in what they seek to do in killing of Aegisthus and Clytemnestra, but they are acting in favour of society, and what we get is this complex play about the duality and nuance of personal desires over the ethical dilemmas of societal responsibility, because if they proceed with the murders, they then have to confront the fact that they are just part of a cycle of violence that they are perpetrating. The old adage, if you murder a murderer, the number of murderers in the world remains the same. And so what we have to navigate is this idea that perhaps Orestes and Electra are just vessels of vengeance, the driving force being their own agendas, or perhaps rather representatives of a society in which justice triumphs over evil no matter the cost. But circling back now to this idea of perpetrating violence, Another masterful thing this play does is not just question our actions, but also the consequence of those actions. And so, Aeschylus reminds us we also bear a moral responsibility for what we put into motion. Our actions are not isolated from the rest of the world, and this is something to note and take care of. If Orestes commits the murder of his mother, he is only a perpetrator and contributing to the violence that got him in the situation in the first place. It sounds like some Greek epic, and it is, but this play is also considerably shorter at around 40 pages, making it the absolute plum-perfect afternoon read. And even though it is short, it is no less potent in its depth and still manages to explore the darkness of humanity. Let's focus now on the language a bit because it deserves our attention and I want to read some of the quotes because why not? It's one thing to have a good story, it's another to tell it, And luckily, Aeschylus can do both. This is part of the pleading Electra is doing as she prays to the grave of Agamemnon for Orestes to come and help her with her vengeance, and she says, Take pity on me and on Orestes, your own son. How shall we two possess our home? We are homeless both, sold by our mother, her price Aegisthus, who murdered you. I live like a slave, Orestes banished, disinherited. They arrogant, vicious, glitter in the wealth you won. So, yeah, at the end of that passage you can see the sort of short, violent, but dazzling words strung together to create this fractured relationship, and also the bursting sense that Electra is holding in for this vengeance that she wants to unleash upon her mother and her lover. This next passage is of Orestes questioning himself and the actions that he has committed, and he says... Is she guilty or not guilty? See this robe dyed red from the work of Aegisus' sword. There is my evidence. Yes, it is blood. Blood whose stains have joined with time to fade and corrode the colours of this patterned stuff. I mean, it's only forty pages, and like, I could legitimately recite the whole thing, but I know I do have to stop somewhere, so I suppose I'll stop around here. A rating I hear you call for? I raided Agamemnon... 4.5 out of 5, and this is the same. It's, it's another sparkling example of not just Aeschylus's lyricism and skill, but also a classic of Greek tragedy and theatre. So now that you know this is episode 14, the first was 7, 14, let's do our basic math. The third and final instalment of this epic tragedy will take place in seven weeks for episode 21. There is still time to get reading, so go and read and tune in for the epic conclusion. So what am I reading this week? I've built it up, you have waited oh so patiently, and here it is. This week I am reading The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. A few weeks ago I finished the Ivan Denisovich episode with a quote from this book and it just kind of, you know, I've been wanting to sink my teeth into this big book for a while because it's been too long since I read a big book and I've also wanted to read this one for a while so I thought, you know, why not? How am I going so far? I think I'm like 80 pages in. I'm cruising along. It feels very much like the introductory stages of the novel, but it has been very good so far. I think the premise of the story has a solid foundation, and I'm keen to see how the brothers grow and interact with each other, and already, and perhaps this is scary, I have taken so many notes, and I don't feel I'm even into the story yet, so that's, you know, it's, it's actually a good sign, so Stay tuned, I think this book might even get a few episodes being so damn chunky. Now, before I close out the show, if you've listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars, I would really appreciate it. Also, feel free to head along to the website to support the pod in other ways, and of course, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. So, I think it's time to end this episode, and to take us away today a bit of Hanya Yanagihara's wisdom from her book, A Little Life. And she wrote... You won't understand what I mean now, but someday you will. The only trick of friendship, I think, is to find people who are better than you. Not smarter, not cooler, but kinder and more generous and more forgiving. And then to appreciate them for what they can teach you, and to try to listen to them when they tell you something about yourself, no matter how bad or good it might be, and to trust them, which is the hardest thing of all, but the best as well.